Have you heard of uh, what is known as the Thomas Jefferson Bible? I trust m- m- most of you have heard who Thomas Jefferson is. He's one of our founding fathers, a framer, designer, signer of the Declaration of Independence, third president of the United States. He was also an avid, as it turns out, Bible reader, knew the original languages, at least the Greek and the New Testament, by all accounts spent a great deal of time reading scripture. He considered himself, you know, not just a deist, he considered himself a Christian. However, Thomas Jefferson denied many of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. He did not believe in the Trinity. He denied the flood. He denied the virgin birth. And he denied the resurrection of Jesus. He largely rejected a lot of the more supernatural and miraculous events or elements of the Bible and the Gospels. And he created his own version of the Gospels in which he removed a number of the elements that he did not find palatable a lot of the supernatural things he removed from those and kind of created his own Bible from it, often literally cutting out pages with scissors. In fact, the Jefferson Bible ends not with the resurrection, but with the tomb being rolled over Jesus' grave. The tomb full, Jesus dead, no resurrection. He removed parts of the Bible that made him uncomfortable, and I wonder if many of us do the same. We may not actually take scissors to our Bible, but we do it in our devotions when we pass by the things that make us uncomfortable and dismiss them as ancient or ignorant or whatever it may be, and we only focus on the things that we actually like and make us comfortable. It raises the question of what do we actually believe about the Bibles that are in our hands or on our phones? Do we believe that scripture is binding on us? Do we believe that it is all an accurate representation of who God is and what he says? Do we believe it is reliable, trustworthy, and true? Do we believe our Bibles are good? Our question this morning is, is the Bible trustworthy and true? Is the Bible trustworthy and true? What do we believe about scripture? To answer that question, we'll turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. If you're uh, an Awana person, you should know these verses. You should be familiar with these verses. They are familiar to many of us. We'll read it in the context of 2 Timothy 3. In the context there, uh, again, we have Paul speaking to his protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a pastor to pastors and churches in Ephesus, and Paul speaking to Timothy, his young protege, and saying, this is how I want you to lead the churches. And specifically in 2 Timothy 3, he's talking to Timothy about continuing on in ministry. This is how you're going to continue to endure, to be faithful and fruitful, and uh, continue on in the ministry that God has given to you. And in that context, Paul talks about Scripture. Because Scripture is what is going to be able to enable Timothy to carry out his ministry and continue on. So I'll read verses 10 through 17. We're going to focus specifically on verses 16 through 17. So 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17 says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Can we trust what the Bible says? Like every sermon in the series, we won't be able to answer every question there is about the Bible or objections we may have to it, but we'll try and speak about some things. And my chief goal may be just to see what Paul says about Scripture, what the Holy Spirit says about Scripture, what God says about his word. To do that, we'll break this couple of verses, these couple of verses up into smaller chunks, First, I just want to focus on Scripture's scope. Just really focusing on the first two words of verse 16. Scripture's scope. And by that, I want to talk about the range, the extent of Scripture. That when we are talking about Scripture, what are we actually talking about? What books do we have in mind? What is Scripture's scope? Verse 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So Paul here is talking about Like it says, all scripture. And everything he is about to say will apply to all of scripture, to every page of scripture. There is no page of your holy Bible that does not fit with what Paul is about to say about it. Even the parts you never read, even lamentations, even the the middle of Jeremiah where you get stuck in the repetition, even all those genealogies, all of that fits with what Paul will say about all of scripture. Now, you might ask, well, what is he referring to when he says Scripture? Well, Paul specifically, in this verse, when he is talking about Scripture, has in mind the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. The sacred writings he refers to in verse 15. That's first and foremost what Paul has in mind. He says, Timothy, when you were a child, you were acquainted with these. Well, the New Testament wasn't written when Timothy was a child, right? So he has in mind, first and foremost, the collected books of the Old Testament. And by the time uh, that Jesus came around and the disciples were around, the, these books were collected. In fact, there is a Greek translation of all the Old Testament books called the Septuagint. And that was kind of a, a known, authoritative collection of the Old Testament books. And those are the books we have in our Bibles, those 39 books as the Old Testament. That would have been what they referred to as scripture, or, or the Greek word here is graphe. It's a word that simply means writings. It's a common word used for writings, but in the New Testament, when the authors of the New Testament use this word graphe, which means writings, they are always referring to the books of the Bible. There's no time where they're not referring to the books of the Bible. They're always, when this word is used, graphe, referring to the Old Testament except for two cases which are interesting. There are two cases where this word is not just referring to the Old Testament. What are they? Well, keep your 
finger there in Second Timothy and turn over to Second Peter 3. Second Peter 3, verse 16, verses 15 through 16, Peter, the apostle, says this about Paul's letters. Paul's talking, or Peter is talking about what Paul wrote, and he uses this word graphe, writings. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So Peter's saying, yeah, sometimes Paul's hard to get, and we like that verse. It gives us comfort. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now watch what Peter says. Which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Isn't that fascinating? Peter uses that word, graphe, which always refers to Old Testament books in the New Testament, and he says, Paul's letters are used the same way the other scriptures are. Which means what? Peter views Paul's letters as scripture. Equal in authority with the Old Testament that guided all of them. He is implying that Paul's letters are just like all the other scriptures, just like all the other graphic writings, and places them on the same levels of authority as the Old Testament. Peter's not the only one who does this, so you can turn back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.18. Just a few pages in your Bible before 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5. It's another verse that puts New Testament writings on the same level as the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, For the Scripture says, there's that word again, Scripture, graphe, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Scripture says both of those things. What is quoted as scripture? Well, first, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4, Old Testament. And then, next, the laborer deserves his wages. Who said that? Jesus said that, as recorded in Matthew 10.10 and Luke 10.7. That is a quote from the Gospels, which Paul says is scripture right side by side with Deuteronomy. Which shows us that from a very, very early time, the writers of the New Testament considered the writings of the New Testament as scripture equal in authority with the Old Testament books. And if you read through Paul's letters and Peter's letters and all the, you'll see that they hold their writing in authority. They'll command the people to read their writing, to spread their letters, to obey what they have written, that what they are writing is from the Lord. So, when Paul writes to Timothy here and he says, he refers to scriptures, he's primarily referring to the Old Testament books. But the theology of the New Testament and the understanding that the apostles had, what they were doing when they were writing the New Testament, would tell us that this also applies to the New Testament as well. When he's writing about scripture, when the Bible talks about scripture, it has not just Old but New Testament all it wrapped up together. You might say, well, how do we know that we have the right books in the New Testament? It's a wonderful question. How do we know that we have the right books? And 
I don't have the time or really honestly the level of education to defend right here and now all of the arguments against all the books in the New Testament and why they should be in here. If you're interested in that kind of thing, I'd recommend a couple of books. The Question of Canon and Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. Or Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. So you can write those down. If you want to research this more, those are great resources by, from experts who can get into that. But I'll give you a couple of thoughts. And one of the narratives out there is that, you know, actually the early church, or not even the early church, later church, they got together hundreds of years later, and then in all their power-hungry authority, they decided which books go in the New Testament, and they excluded some and included others, and they really rigged this thing, and that's why we have the books that we have, right? You maybe have heard that narrative, it became really popular with the old dumb book, The Da Vinci Code. Um, that's not really the reality of what happened. The reality of what happened is just these were the letters that were shared, that were seen as authoritative from the earliest times on. And then as the church actually got to be able to talk to each other and meet once they are done being persecuted by the Romans and actually had the ability to meet together and convene, then the leaders of the church were simply recognizing what books they had all been using. And there were debates along, along the way. In 1500s, Martin Luther didn't think James should be part of the Bible, right? So it's not like there was always universal agreement from every person. But by and large, there was consensus amongst the early church as to what books were scripture and what weren't. So if you read the Apostolic Fathers, which are 100 to 200 years after the apostles, the apostolic fathers came next, that next generation of, of Christians and leaders, you read their writings and what you will find is them quoting scripture constantly to the extent that you can basically reconstruct the entire New Testament from the quotes from the apostolic fathers because they saw it as authoritative and they quoted it and used it often. So the early church recognized what books were theirs and what weren't. And you might say, well, what about those books that they left out? Maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. You heard of that one? It was a book that was written a little bit after your New Testament books. It was kind of a book of sayings, supposedly about Jesus and his disciples. And again, a lot of scholars said, well, why would that authoritative church and those rude Christians leave out a book like the Gospel of Thomas? Well, one, it wasn't written as early, it wasn't ever recognized as authoritative. And these Gnostic Gospels, or books like the Gospel of Thomas, include some weird things from time to time, which obviously disqualified it. So, for example, here's saying 114 from the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us, for females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, See, I'm going to attract her to make her male so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes itself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think? Should that be part of script? No. Right? They rejected later writings and other things for reasons. Because they're written later by um, uncreditable or, or discredited sources with discredited content. The early writings of the church, the New Testament, were spread far and wide also in their manuscripts. Maybe you've heard about the manuscript evidence of the New Testament in the Bible. The reality is that no book, no ancient book, was as copied and as duplicated and as spread as the New Testament was. So 
Kids, if you go to college and your college professors ever say, you know, you shouldn't really write the New Testament or trust the New Testament books or trust what they say because they've been discredited and you can't trust ancient documents and, you know, I've heard the telephone game, what somebody said earlier, just gets warped over time, then down the line you can't trust what you originally had. All those kind of things to discredit New Testament writings. Ask them, do you read Aristotle? Should we trust Homer? Should we read Plato? Do we trust that we have the words of those philosophers? And all of your liberal scholar uh, professors will say, yes, of course, we trust that we have those things. And you say, okay, well, we should trust those things. We have so many copies of what Homer wrote, 650, in fact, copies, ancient manuscripts of what Homer wrote. So we're pretty sure that we have what he wrote, and we trust that. How about Plato? How many manuscripts do we have from Plato? About 260 manuscripts of Plato floating around from ancient times. From Aristotle, about 390 manuscripts, copies of the text. The oldest manuscripts come hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the originals, the philosophers died, but we trust that those are their words. How about Jesus in the New Testament? How many copies or manuscripts do we have of the New Testament? Well, we have about 5,800 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 in Latin and 9,300 in other languages, so about 25,000 total manuscripts. The earliest of which isn't from hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus' life, but from probably about 200 AD. If you didn't follow all that, the point being, we have copies of the New Testament far earlier and far more widely distributed than any other ancient book. We can trust it. New Testament books were all written from about 25 to 50 years after the death of Jesus, at a time when the people who saw Jesus were still around and still living. Frederick George Kenyon writes, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it and of quotations from it, and the oldest writers of the church, is so large that it is practically certain the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in someone or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. All of that to say, we have a wonderfully accurate record of the Gospels and the letters of the Apostles. So when Paul talks about all of Scripture, we know what he's talking about and you have it in your hands. The question is, will you see what you have in your hands as Scripture? Or will you rip out parts that you don't like? This is my concern for you, pastorally, for all of us, that when we see something that challenges us, we would just uh, ignore that. That's not like as scripture as other scripture is. You know, it's not in red letters. And I'd remind you that those red letters were not written by Jesus himself, but by the apostles, just like all the other New Testament books. It's all scripture. It all is binding upon us. So don't get in the habit of ignoring and dismissing the hard parts of your Bible. Anything that pushes you or challenges you, work to figure out what is this saying? If God spoke to you, he didn't intend for you to just ignore it. 
He said it for a reason. So if there's something that is hard, something that is difficult, don't brush it away, don't wave it away, but lean into it and figure out what is this actually saying because I think this is important, this is scripture, this is what God said. And so much of what I want to do, maybe this, this probably should have been the first sermon I preached in this series, but so much of what I want to do in this series is present to you the hardest parts of scripture, or some of the hard parts, so you can wrestle with it. Because what's going to happen is you're smart, your kids are smart, your non-Christian friends are smart. And they can open up the Bible, just like everybody else, and point to the hard parts and say, well, what about that? And I don't want to be a pastor, and I don't want us to be a church that just ignores all that stuff. I don't want you to leave CBC sometime, open up your Bible and go, what, this is in there? My pastor hid this from me. They're scared of this stuff. I want us to be a church that wrestles with all of it because all of it is God's word and all of it is for us in some way or another. All of it is good. We don't need to hide from it. That is what Paul gets into next when he talks about scripture's nature. So the second half of verse 16, we've gone through two words. We'll pick up the pace a little bit. The second half of verse 16 Paul describes scripture. What is scripture's nature? What is its nature? Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's a wonderfully simple verse. All of scripture is two things. One, God breathed. Two, profitable. All of it. As God breathed, here Paul uses a Greek word that we think he might have actually made up. We don't see it earlier in history, but we do see it later. But Paul, as far as we know, is the first person to use this Greek word, and it's a word that is theonoustos. God wind, or God breathed, God spirit. Theos, noustos. Theonoustos, God breathed. In the same way that God breathed out creation, God breathed out this word created by him. We sometimes refer to this as the inspiration of scripture. When we say that, we're not just saying that scripture is inspirational, but rather it was inspired by God. So you, when you breathe in, kids, you can do this with me, a little exercise. Breathe in, breathe out, inspire, expire. This is what scripture is. It's breathed out, inspired by God. It's what Peter refers to when he writes in 2 Peter 1. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried along the authors of scripture as they wrote. So in the Bible, there are always two authors. The human author and the divine author. So we can never dismiss parts of Scripture by saying, oh, that's just what James wrote, that's just what Peter wrote, that's just what Moses wrote, that's just what Paul wrote. No. There was a human author. There was also a divine author. Scripture's God-breathed has his breath, his voice, his word. Which means for us, here's the wonderful thing, we don't have to go looking out to the skies, waiting for the clouds to part, just wondering when God will speak to us. He's already spoken. More words than most of us can handle. He has given us his word. 
Uh, there is a service online right now, you may not know about it, but a service called Cameo. Have you heard of this? So Cameo is where you can pay celebrities, and they'll record personalized messages for you. So this is a funny one. I didn't plan on saying this, but since I'm in a good mood, it's Colorado won last night. So my team, Colorado Avalanche, are in the Stanley Cup final. There, there's a cameo. that Somebody paid Gilbert Godfrey, the late Gilbert Godfrey, to pump up the Colorado Avalanche. Let's go, Colorado, in the Gilbert Godfrey voice. Awesome, right? So somebody did that with Cameo. He doesn't know who they are, but he got paid to do it. You can, uh, if you want, you can pay Brian Baumgartner. You might not know who that is. For you Office fans, that is Kevin from The Office. You can pay him, and he will record a personalized message for you. Isn't that wonderful? I'll give you a chili recipe or something. Um, inside joke. You can pay celebrities to speak to you. Or... You can read your Bible for free. We pay wonderful, glorious people to speak personalized messages to us. And we also have before us a personal word from the God of the universe. And it, because it is his word, it has all of his characteristics, his holiness, his love, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his wisdom, his knowledge, his perfection. Because it is his word, it has his perfection in it. Many would question that. There are some who have made whole careers, whole lifetimes out of trying to find ways to discredit, disprove scripture. And there's good money in it. You can make yourself quite popular doing it. But I do think our scripture is reliable. It's historical. Not all of it is intended to explicitly be history book. There's different genres, poetry, laments. But the books that are history are history. And they include things that history would include. People say, well, it's just a bunch of myths, fairy tales, fables, that kind of thing. Or you hear this, way, history is always written by the winners. Israel was rarely the winner. In fact, History includes, or the scriptures include a whole bunch of embarrassing details that you would not include if you're trying to make up a story. If Israel is making up a story about itself in its own grandeur, it would look a lot more grand. If they're fabricating a story about Israel's history, it would make Israel look a lot better than it actually does. But when we read scripture, what we find is all sorts of embarrassing details about Israel. All sorts of embarrassing details about the disciples. You read about them fighting over who was the greatest. You read about them denying Jesus. You read about them falling in water. You read about them doing all sorts of stupid things. Which would be a weird way to write history if you're trying to make yourself look good. The scriptures never do. It's because they're just recording what happened. Scripture has insignificant details all over it that you would never include if you were writing fiction. For example, do we know who Simon the Cyrene is? When Jesus was carrying his cross, and I think a significant inclusion, he needed help with it. Probably not a detail we'd include if we were just making up stories about Jesus, but because it actually happened, he actually needed help. They actually got a guy by the name of Simon and Cyrene. And then Mark writes in his note about Simon, Mark 15, 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. 
the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Who are Alexander and Rufus? We have no idea. Why? Because they're not that important. And it's important that they're not important. Because it tells us, Mark wasn't just writing this to tell the tale of the legend of Rufus and Alexander, the sons of Simon and Simon. He wrote that because they were probably two members in the church and said, you know those guys. It would be like if I were writing this and they said, oh, and Kyle and Danielle King. Later generations won't know who they are, but we know it was written for them. It was written for people in the church. Because it was an actual historical account, not a fabricated tale. Some will object to scripture saying it contains contradictions. Uh, I don't have time to get into all of them, or really any of them. I'll just say, find them. There is no apparent contradiction in scripture that has not had thousands of articles written about it on scholars who have shown why it isn't a contradiction, as people say. It's one of those things where people like Bart Ehrman, you might hear that name thrown around, made a living of trying to point out contradictions in Scripture. And people respond and point out, no, you're just understanding it wrong. But Paul told us people were going to do this, twist Scripture. Peter warned us of that. I don't think that's people's biggest problem with Scripture, saying there are contradictions in it. Um, There's always an answer. I think the biggest problem people have with Scripture is just that it's offensive to them. This offends me. But I want you to consider that. And I want you to consider why the offense of Scripture is good. Scripture, if it is God's Word, must be offensive to you. If Scripture is God's Word... It must offend you, correct you, teach you, rebuke you, alter the way you think. Why? Because if it didn't, you would just have a book that agrees with you. A book that thinks all your same thoughts. Let me ask you, do you have a perfect mind? Are you perfect in your wisdom? Are you complete in all your knowledge? Do you have no errors in your thinking at all? We should all freely admit our thinking, our perspective is flawed, incomplete. We need correction. So why then would you assume a book full of the perfect words of God would never challenge your thinking and think just like you? To put it bluntly, God's word should not be as dumb as you are. It should not be as dumb as me or as I am. It should be better than that. And therefore it will offend, correct, think differently than I do. As it turns out, that's exactly what Scripture does. Paul talks about it. Scripture is profitable. 
It's God-breathed, and because it's God-breathed, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Those are four related words that all really talk about the same thing, training up. Uh, The first two words, teaching, reproof, or rebuke, those two words have to do with doctrine. Training in doctrine, instruction, teaching, that's a doctrine word. It talks about how Scripture forms your doctrine and your thinking. And then rebuke, reproof, that also is talking about doctrine. It corrects the way you think. So Scripture teaches us what is right and also corrects what is wrong in our thinking. So again, you should not be surprised when you're studying Scripture and it challenges the way you think. That's its job. And anybody who teaches Scripture, that's their job, is to say what Scripture says so that your thinking can be changed according to what Scripture says. That's its role. That's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It shapes our thinking and also shapes our behavior. And those are the second two words, correction and training in righteousness. Correction is a word that speaks to our actions, our behavior. And training in righteousness speaks to our behavior as well. That's discipleship. So what Scripture does, changes the way you think and changes the way you act, the way you behave. So again, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's talking about behavior, doing God's will. Scripture changes the way you think so that you can behave differently. What an encouragement that Scripture holds before us. It has the power to change the way we think and to change the way we live. That's what it does by its nature. It's profitable for this. Parents, Scripture has the ability to teach your children to change behavior, to change you. If you've been struggling all your lives with behavior, Scripture has the perfection and the power to change your behavior. This might be the true wonder of Scripture, not just that it is good, but that it produces good. What happens when Scripture is lost? Uh, I was actually reading in my own devotions this week the book of Judges. What happened in Judges? God gave Israel the promised land. They settled, and everything went happily ever after. Right? No. Everything went crazy. The people abandoned God, and God have to, kept having to send them people to save them over and over and over again because they kept abandoning God. How did that happen? How did they get in that predicament? Judges 2, 10 through 12 says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Do you see the steps in the process? The next generation did not know the Lord. They did not know who he was or what he had done. They abandoned him. They went after other gods. That is instruction for all of us. It's instruction for parents. How do you ensure the next generation will walk away from God? Stop teaching them about what God has done. If we fail to teach the next generation who the Lord is from his word, we will prepare them to abandon God. 
That's what happened in Judges. It's the cycle always. We teach Scripture because it changes people. And that is ultimately Scripture's purpose. We see that in verse 17. Scripture's purpose. This is the, the goal, to, the final goal, the outcome of Scripture. It was really to equip saints for good works. Verse 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's his purpose statement. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Who is the man of God? Timothy would recognize the language Paul's using there. He actually says the anthropos, the human of God. And it's a way that Old Testament servants of God were referred to. This is God's person. So Old Testament servants like Moses, King David, Elijah, Elisha, they were called the servants of God, the people of God, or the man of God. Paul's now using that language to speak to Timothy. This scripture is here, so you, the man of God, the servant of God, may be equipped for ministry. So Paul's, again, he's speaking directly to Timothy, and this is applying to him. This, this is what Scripture's purpose is, to equip you as a man of God, as a minister of God. But we can take this faithfully and apply it to us, because all of us, whether we're men or women, are ministers of God. God has made us a kingdom of priests and all people to minister and to serve God and others as his people. We are servants of God, each and every one of us. So if you want to ask, how am I supposed to fulfill my ministry? How am I supposed to serve God? Whether it be home, church, anywhere else, how am I to be a servant of God? Here's the answer. You've been given scripture so that you may be complete and equipped to do it. So you may be complete for every good work. Meaning... You have what you need. You might not think you have what you need. Again, I'll talk to parents because I am one, and I'm going through it. There's about 23 hours a day where I don't feel like I have what I need. Parenting. And there's all sorts of resources out there that are wonderful and great and useful. Things of sociology and social sciences and all those things like Good stuff. But ultimately, my job as a parent is to equip my children in the Lord and train them up in righteousness and his ways. That is my primary job as a parent, and I have what I need for it. I have scripture. I'm complete. What this is talking about is actually the sufficiency of scripture. Scripture is what we need to complete our ministries, and we don't lack anything in that. If you're going on vacation this summer, you may pack for it and pack all sorts of things, and you go through a checklist of all the things you need for your vacation, for your camp out, whatever it may be. As you have your checklist for what do I need to fulfill my ministry, to train others in righteousness, to do the Lord's work, you have one item on your checklist and one item only. You have what you need, Scripture. That's it. Really simple. And you are in that equipped for how many works? Only a few? Look at the verse. Look at scripture. Look at what it says. Believe what it says. Every good work. Is Paul lying? Is God lying to you? Or should we actually believe that in scripture, we have what we need for every good work? 
I was helping out with a college class recently, and it was a, at a, for a Bible college, and they had brought different pastors in to kind of give perspectives on pastoral ministry. And one of the other um, pastors in there was talking about, you know, if you're going to be a good pastor, a good servant in the church, you really need um, to study up on your anthropology. You really need to study up on your sociology. You really need all these things, or else you can't really be a good minister or pastor. And I argued, <laughs> so, um, because it's my nature, and also because of what this verse says. Not saying those things aren't good. We're all shaped in different ways. We're educated in different ways. I love training and education. And God makes us all with different gifts in different ways to, for us to be useful in the world. But ultimately, the one thing you need is not a degree from anywhere, whether it's a seminary or not. Ultimately, the one thing you need to be faithful in ministry is your Bible. I'm going to say it over and over again so that you believe it. And often, if we feel useless, if we don't feel like God is working, probably not because we're not educated enough. It's just that we're not faithful enough to what Scripture already says. We have what we need in Scripture. Unless you are formed by God's Word, you cannot do God's work. I believe this because Jesus relied on Scripture. As he was tempted in the wilderness... Hungry and tired, just like we are now. Looking forward to a meal. What did Jesus rely on? More than bread, he relied on scripture. If it's good enough for Jesus, at his lowest moment, it is good enough for us through all of life. And I'm not just talking about knowing scripture but applying it letting it produce good in us we go back to Thomas Jefferson Thomas Jefferson knew scripture probably know better than I did he probably spent more time with it knew the Greek and he denied Jesus the resurrection denied the virgin birth lived in pretty wicked immoral life Carrying on an affair, if you want to call it that, with one of his slaves. He taught and believed in something called polygenesis. Uh, polygenesis is the idea that we don't have um, two original parents in Adam and Eve. They weren't like the progenitors of all of creation. But actually, as people and as the world, we have multiple different original parents. Why did Thomas Jefferson believe this? He could not wrap his head around the idea that white people and black people could come from the same people. So unequal were they. This is the kind of stuff that happens when you start ripping pages of your scripture out and not applying them. He was actually constantly criticized by Christians for his views and shrugged them off, was annoyed with all the fundamentalists who pushed back on him. When we apply scripture, we find ourselves corrected, humbled, convicted, and if we apply all of our scriptures, saved and found in Jesus Christ. What does Paul say to Timothy in verse 15. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is what your Bible can do that no other book can do. It can save you. It can tell you you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And it can introduce that Savior to you and present Jesus Christ in all of his glory to you. And if you apply what Scripture says, you will find yourself united to Jesus Christ, knowing him, walking with him, humbled, convicted, built up, renewed, made alive. Because your Bible tells you that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Scripture is able to save us because it presents Christ to us as our Savior who forgives. I was talking to somebody recently and they told me about a professor they had in Bible college or seminary and asked them to sum up what's the greatest theological truth they know. And I don't know if I'm getting the details of it right, but I do know the response that the professor gave. It's the most profound piece of theology, you know. He said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's all you need. Would you pray with me? Thank you. Father, this morning, help us to love your word, not because we love necessarily education or academics or interpretation, though all those things are necessary and good. We love your word because it tells us who Jesus is, who your son is, and it tells us that you love us. As weak and sinful as we may find ourselves, we come to your word and are refreshed and encouraged because we meet you there and hear your voice. We are built up, corrected and trained. Help us to love our Bibles because we love you and most of all because you have loved us. And may we be a church of people, families, children, adults shaped by scripture, shaped by your love. Amen.